Welcome to MAC. My name is Mark Absher. I'm one of the staff ministers here. If we've never had an opportunity to meet, I would love to meet you this morning. Uh, if you're a member and you're sitting by somebody that you happen to know is a visitor this morning, I'm going to ask you specifically uh, to take them uh, to the Green Wall. I'm, I'm going to be out by the Green Wall at the conclusion of our worship time this morning, and I would love to have an opportunity to meet you. You might be a new member of our church family that we haven't had a chance to meet personally, or if you're here again for the first time or been visiting, we've never had a chance to meet, please come by the Green Wall out in the family room so that we can have a chance to meet each other. As you know, we started this last week uh, a series on marriage that we're calling The Myths of Marriage. And what we're going to do each week is to look at two myths that pertain to marriage. There are going to be six in all. Uh, the first myth that we look at in the, the, the message is going to be one that we really engage prior to saying, I do. And then from that point, we'll go to the second myth, which is one that we engage after we say, I do. And as a review, and kind of if you, this is your first time with us, uh, to kind of give you an idea of what I'm talking about in this sermon series when it comes to, you know, how we're going to look at these myths. Last week, we looked at myth number one, which was this. I have to be married in order to be happy, fulfilled, and normal. That is a myth that we find on campuses. That's a myth that we find in our church families. That I have to be married to be uh, happy and to be fulfilled and to be normal. We get married thinking that it is the key to our happiness. And then after we do get married, we engage a second myth that says my spouse exists to meet all my needs. If the first myth is true, that I have to be married to be happy and fulfilled and to be normal, then the second myth has to be true too, and that is my spouse exists to meet all of my needs. And again, both of these are wrong. My spouse will complete me. That's what a lot of people go into marriage thinking, that my spouse is going to complete me, my spouse is going to fill in all the holes, uh, my spouse is going to fill in all the gaps and make me a much more complete person. And they may make you a much more complete person because marriage can be one of the best finishing schools that you've ever attended. But the truth of the matter is, is that when you put on somebody the burden to meet all of your needs and to make you complete and to, and, and to fill in all of the gaps and all those, you are putting an incredibly heavy burden on top of that person. God and God alone is the only one that can fill that God-shaped hole in our hearts. And so one of the things, one of the main teachings this last week was this. It's up here on the screen. It's insane to believe that a broken human can do what only God can do. Can we say that together? It's insane to believe that a broken human can do what only God can do. We need to replace those myths with a better reality and a biblical reality. And again, let me underscore that this is not the easiest thing in the world to do. It's, it's hard, it's difficult to move away from a myth for two reasons. Many of the myths that we believe that have become ingrained in, you know, it, it, we've heard them all our life. And so they kind of become ingrained in the way we see the world, our worldview. Uh, some of them are so deeply embedded in our thinking that it's almost as if they have become a part of our DNA. And then the second thing is, even though they've been disproved, it's hard to disbelieve a myth that we have believed and have acted on and believed to be true all of our life. 
It takes work because many times, not only is it hard to overcome a lie or to overcome a myth, but a lot of times it's just hard to spot them. It's just hard to spot them. There was a woman, or there, she's still alive, but the, this happened about a, a decade ago. A woman by the name of Pamela Meyer wrote a book entitled Lie Spotting, about spotting lies. And then she did a TED Talk in June of 2011. And in that, that, that TED Talk, she talked about the problem of, of deception in our culture. In fact, she goes on to say that she, she believes that we are facing a pandemic of deception and that we need in North America to be equipped to detect lies when we encounter them. Now, in that TED Talk entitled How to Spot a Liar, she starts off by making a really interesting point. It's up here on the screen, and it's a quote that lying is a cooperative act. That lying is a cooperative act. A lie has no power whatsoever in its mere utterance. Its power emerges when someone else agrees to believe the lie. Lying is a cooperative act. A lie has no power whatsoever in its mere utterance. Its power emerges when someone else agrees to believe the lie. Thus spoke Pamela Meyer. Now she will go on to say in this TED Talk that uh, many of those lies are, are white lies. And, and she will go on to say in, in that TED Talk, and this may blow your mind, a human being living on planet Earth in North America on a daily basis, studies are showing this to be true throughout anywhere you live in North America or in Western culture for that instance, that a human being will be lied anywhere from, tw from 10 to 200 times a day. From 10 to 200 times a day. And she says, you know, now a lot of these are white lies or something that we might read on social media, you, you know, that's not necessarily truthful. A lot of virtue signaling does a lot of this. Or a lot of times it's the things that we say to keep from hurting somebody else's feelings about maybe what they're wearing or hairstyle or whatever. But there are lies and there are untruths and there are myths that can undermine our lives. And not only undermine our lives, but bring an end to our marriages. And unless we detect them and we choose not to believe them, that is exactly what they're going to do. So we're going to follow basically the same format that we had last week. That is, we're going to uncover this week myth three. We're going to uncover myth four. And then we're going to discover or rediscover the challenge of marriage. So let's talk about the second set of myths. Myth number three, my soulmate is out there someplace. My soulmate is out there someplace. This is the myth that basically says there is one, with a capital O, there is one person out there that is meant for you. In other words, there is a person out there that you are meant for to marry a person that was created just for you we call him mr right we call her miss right now ironically this is the very myth that keeps some folks from getting married in the first place 
the idea that there is a person out there who is perfect for me. Last I counted, there was over 8 billion people in the world. It'll take some time to get through that, right? To find that one right person. Is that not what is implied, though, in the word soulmate? Is that not what is implied when we say we're looking for our soulmate? That there is a person out there someplace who syncs up precisely with my soul and personality seamlessly. That there is a person, when I meet them, they're going to get me 100%, even when I don't get myself. They get all of my needs, they get all of my quirks, they get all of my kinks. And a lot of times, my friends, we spiritualize this a little bit. We say, there is a man or a woman that I am destined to marry. My one and only soulmate. And for some, who just happens to be hot. My soulmate, babe. And here's the scenario. The very first thing you notice about your future spouse, the thing that gets the ball rolling, is that that person was very, very attractive to you. You saw him in class, you saw him in a store, you, you, know, you saw him at work, wherever. But the very first thing that you notice about your future spouse, there was something about them, about their personality, the way they look, that, that got the ball rolling. So you ask them out on a date, or you say yes to a date, which leads to a second date and a third date in many dates. And after a while, you know, the dates are pretty nice. And you say it's fun, it's natural. You know, it just seems so effortless to, and, and romantic to be with that person. It feels like we are what? made for each other that this relationship has been made in heaven and it's here that every marriage goes through a a seismic shift every marriage experiences a shift from romance to reality. There's a proposal, an engagement, a marriage, and a honeymoon. And after that honeymoon, you experience a seismic shift from romance to reality. Romance is a 30-second kiss. Reality is morning breath. <laughs> romance is a Hallmark card. Reality is asking about a charge on the credit card. Romance is a walk in the park. Reality is taking the garbage out. And this is where believing that third myth begins to open the door for the fourth myth of marriage, and that's this, that good marriages should not be hard work. I mean, I'm married to my soulmate. I'm married to the person that was made just for me, that's going to get me in every regard, that's going to compliment me, that's going to make me complete, that's going to do all of these things that a soulmate is supposed to do. So when it's that seismic shift from romance to reality, it becomes, why is this such hard work? And in the midst of the discontent and the disillusionment and the disappointment, you begin wondering to yourself, if this person is my soulmate, then why is this so Hard, and you begin to wonder if you married the wrong person. See how those myths work together? We begin to wonder if the person we married, the person that we are married to, is not the right person. And we begin to wonder if, 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 if that person is not the one that we are supposed to be married to, and that's buying into the myth 
And when we begin buying into that myth of it shouldn't be this hard, then we begin to brew a little trouble in the relationship. Listen, my friends, you just don't stumble onto a soulmate. You don't stumble onto a soulmate. Soulmates are made. Soulmates are developed through space and time. You know, when we get these young people together to talk about marriage, and, you, you know, they're right out of college, and sometimes they're in their later 20s. Kiddos are uh, marrying a little bit later these days. One of the things that we talk about is intimacy. And we talk about, you know, intimacy is not the sexual relationship. Intimacy is feeling like this person lives inside of you, and you live inside of them. It's the, this is bone in my bone and flesh in my flesh. This is the person that looks like they fit in me, and I fit in them, and that person is made. And we define, or we we describe the process of intimacy this way, that intimacy is a product of, of, of being covenantly connected to somebody through vows in which you go around the block with them through space and time many times, and you begin to grow into that one person. The bottom line is that the best marriages are the result of hard work. Can you say amen to that? You know, those of us who... who who believe that we are married to a person that gets our soul and would say, I get the soul of the person I'm married to, we will all tell you that it is the product of some extremely hard work, which leads us now to the challenge of marriage. Why do people get married? Why do people get married? I mean, through, through all of history, why do people get married? In the, the ancient world, we'll start there, and I'm talking by and large, marriage was about seeking and securing the status of the family. Think arranged marriages. And some of that still happens to this day. It's not just you know, something that happened in the ancient world. It still happens in certain parts of the world today. But by and large, in the ancient world, it was arranged marriages to secure alliances. It was about forming allegiances. It was about protecting and increasing wealth and, and increasing status. That was the ancient world. In the modern Western world, where I think most of us here live in the <laughs> modern Western world, there is more of a consumer mentality that I'm getting married because this person is going to make me happy. It's a consumer mentality. I mean, the consumer mentality happens everywhere. I mean, uh, you know, it's not just when you're out at the HEB or the Target or wherever, you know, consuming. I mean, we have a consumer mentality a lot of times in church, and we come to worship, and we sometimes say, you know, I didn't really get anything out of that. It didn't do anything for me. That's a consumer mentality. We take that same mentality into marriage. Biblically speaking, that ancient view and the modern Western view are both naive. But I want to, just for a moment, address marriage in the modern Western world where we look upon marriage as, as kind of a, a consumer good. Too many times in marriage, it's treated as a consumer transaction. Now, it is a well-known and established fact that I am a Ford man, a Ford pickup man. I have only owned Ford trucks. I have a relationship with Ford Motor Company that goes back to 1980. 43 years of Ford pickups. 
and I'm driving a Ford pickup now, and let's suppose I'm at a stoplight. My truck, you know, has a little bit of age on it. It's, it's still a great truck, and I'm sitting in stoplight, minding my own business, and the next thing you know, out rolls in front of me this beautiful Toyota Tundra. Beautiful. Or it could have been a Dodge Ram, or it could have been, a, you know, a, a GMC Sierra, or, or, or a Chevy. But let's say it's a Toyota Tundra. It rolls right down the road, and I think, you know, that's a really good-looking truck. That's a really good-looking truck. And then I go about my business, get home, eat dinner with Ellen, sit down, we're watching Amazon Prime, Netflix something. And all of a sudden I begin to realize that I am really seeing a lot of commercials advertising Tundras with all kinds of incentives and all kinds of rebates. And I remember that pretty Tundra that walked across, walked, rolled. <laughs> yeah, you see where I'm going with this, right? <laughs> <laughs> you can't make this stuff up you know i just i defy you to even try you know so here's this truck comes rolling uh, across you know your vision and you remember in all those incentives and commercials and stuff you remember that beautiful beautiful tr- tundra and you begin to think about the tundra and you go you know they are made here in san antonio and you wonder i begin to wonder is the tundra a better deal is the tundra a better deal? And then it hits me that after all these years, I am in a consumer relationship with Ford, and I might just leave Ford if a better deal presents itself. If we treat marriage as a consumer good, then we're going to be all in until a better deal presents itself. And can you imagine what it's like if you're the spouse and you realize that the person you're married to sees you as a commodity, they have commodified you, that you are the consumer good to them? Do you know how awful that is? In a consumer relationship, the other person is always having to adjust to you. And quite frankly, that is just exhausting. Here's something I want you to write down on your outlines. Biblical marriage is not a consumer good. It is a covenant relationship. This last Saturday night, I stood in front of Connor Gazelle and Tyler Rose Smith. And I said, Connor, I want you to listen very carefully to what I'm about to ask you. Do you take... Do you vow to take this woman in sickness and in health, in poverty or prosperity, in, in, in sickness or in health, the good times, the mountaintops, do you vow until death do you part? And I said the same thing. Tyler Rose, I want you to listen to what I'm about to ask you. Do you take Connor? You are making a, a covenant with each other. Now, one of the places, and we don't have time to unpack it this morning, but one of the places where I think that Paul really talks about what this relationship looks like is found in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. It's kind of a lengthy section, verses 21 through 33. It'll be up here on the screen. It's also on your outline, but I want you to read along with me. 
So Paul says to the church, he writes there, and further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another because of Jesus. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives, just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body but feeds and cares for it just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way that Christ and the church are one. So again I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. In this text... Paul is trying to help the church in Ephesus understand that there is a lot of similarity in the relationship between Christ and the church and the marriage relationship between a husband and a wife. Think about that just for a sec. Christ in heaven, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, in harmony, celebration, trinity, love, fellowship. Christ sees us in our true human condition that we are we're stuck in that human condition and and jesus saw we are not even in the ballpark of what it is that god intends for us to be as human beings and so christ comes down and in coming down he lays down his life for us it's about forgiveness and sacrificial love and grace and patience and self-control and stick and perseverance and endurance. And the result is a forever relationship with Jesus. And it results in a journey of becoming our future selves. And this is what Paul is, is, is talking about in, in marriage and in, in the church. Paul, in Ephesians 5, says that this is what happens in your marriage. Your marriage is a demonstration of the gospel. Your marriage is a demonstration. People should be able to look at your marriage. They should be able to look at my marriage with Ellen, Ellen to me. They should look at your marriage between you and your spouse, the way that you interact, the way you talk to one another, the way that you relate to one another, the, the oneness of your relationship, and they should get an idea of what the gospel is all about. But if we have a consumer relationship, but if we have a consumer relationship in marriage, we will say this, I will be the spouse, I will be the spouse I need to be if only and, and only if you are the spouse you need to be. 
I will be the spouse I need to be if and only if you are the spouse you need to be. In a covenant relationship, we say this, I will be the spouse you need me to be even if you are not the spouse you need to be. You are saying, I will do for you what Christ has done for me. Not just on the day that I was saved, but every day since. That God has filled the God-shaped hole in my heart, so so saturated me with His presence, that my cup now overflows with love into you. I will participate with Christ in helping you to become your future self. You know, when it talks about, you you know, uh, the the things in common, uh, you know, when Ellen and I first, you you know, got married, uh, I I, I think nobody saw that one coming. I mean, she, she had grown up in one of the great missionary families of, of our time. I mean, she was, you know, 16, 17 years old when she moved from Malawi and Rhodesia and it was Zimbabwe at the time back to the United States. I mean, she, her, her family had been responsible for thousands of, of people coming to Christ in those two countries in Africa. They had gone through a civil war. My wife, my little wife, had been through mortar attacks. And then one day in our freshman year at ACU, here is this, this, this woman growing up the way that she did meeting a dude that looks like me whose greatest aspiration six months earlier had been to be the drummer in a rock band. And you look at those two people and you go, you know, that cat does not go with her. What is she thinking in being with him? What we had in common was the trajectory we were on. What we had in common was what we desired to become in Christ. When we say, I do, we we take on, as spouses, sort of this full-time job of helping bring out and develop and extract out the best version of our spouse. You know, going back to the whole romance and reality, you know, romance is putting your best foot forward. Reality is learning how to serve and how to wash the feet of your spouse. Romance is holding hands. Reality is holding your spouse close when they're not at their best. Romance is focused on what you get. Reality is focused on what they become in Christ. And the most practical thing that I want to leave you with this morning, and we're done, is this statement. Love is an action first and a feeling second. Love is an action first and a feeling second. C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity some, some, a lot of things that we should never forget. But he once wrote that you shouldn't waste time worrying whether or not you really love someone. If you love someone, then you should simply do the actions of love. And the next thing you know, you find out that you're actually loving that person. The answer is not in stirring up feelings, but to start doing what love requires in every situation. Paul would say it this way in 1 Corinthians 13. Love. 
Love. You know what it is? It's patient and it's kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It does not demand its own way. It's not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. Wow, we could just get segments of this, right? It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. You know what that sounds like? When, it, when you rejoice, when the truth wins out, it makes it so much easier to say, you know what, I messed up. I'm a dope. I'm sorry. I was wrong. That's a way to think about rejoicing whenever the truth wins out. I'm happy. I'm okay. I, I was wrong. You were right. Truth wins out. Love never gives up. It never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. My friends, there, there are, there's really only basically three things you cannot change. You can't change the past, you can't change the truth, and you can't change another person. But you can change. But you can change, and that is at the core of the gospel. You are not saved to just be forgiven and to sit on a pew and do your time until Jesus comes again, and you don't need Jesus until you see him again at judgment. When you become a disciple of Jesus, God puts his spirit in you and you are forgiven, but it's never called a graduation, it's called a new birth because you, you begin to grow up at that point and you become the person that you were always meant to be. That's what you're looking for in a spouse is somebody that's on that same trajectory with you. You can only change yourself. Why wait? Why not just take 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7, and just begin to pray through that every day this week? To, be a better, to, to, to get a better spouse, you have to become a better spouse. And you know how you can do that? On the night that Jesus was betrayed. He, he knows. He's at the end. He's got hours, a few, with these disciples. And then he's going to be crucified. And after the resurrection, only 40 days. And right now he is at the end. He's looking at these cats sitting around the table sharing a meal together. And he knows that they've been arguing over who's going to be the greatest. Who's going to get the most? You know, it's, it's this consumer relationship. What do I get for following Jesus? The kingdom and greatness and all the, these kinds of things. And Jesus, it says at the beginning of John chapter 13, he, he knew he was going back to the Father and he loved them. Which means that he loved them to the very end and showed them the full extent of his love. And he noticed that, you know, at this meal, because they're laying right up next to each other, everybody's got some pretty bad looking feet. And he gets up and he strips down to, you know, just a, a, a towel wrapped around him. And the place goes silent because he's the master. He's the Lord. He's the teacher. He's the son of God. You know, Peter had said it. They all heard it. And he's the one that's getting up and beginning to wash their feet. And it goes all the way around. 
and, you know, gets into that little verbal scuffle with Peter. And he says, Peter, listen, if I don't wash your feet, if you don't get this, if you don't get this, Peter, listen to me. If you don't get this, you have no part. You, ju- you just, you don't get me. You don't understand me. And then he takes the towel off and redresses and he sits down. And he says, I know what you're thinking. This is the weirdest thing you've ever seen. But let me tell you about the kingdom of God and the nature of the kingdom, the character of the kingdom of God. As I have loved you, love one another. All people will know that you're my disciples if you have this kind of love. And you know what? What did he do? Jesus Jesus saw this really ugly need that they had that was more than just the dirty feet. It was the ugliness in their heart. And he wasn't responsible for their dirty feet. He didn't make their feet dirty. It wasn't his fault that their feet were dirty. It wasn't his fault. None of it. But what did he decide to do? He decided to take a hit for them. He's the Lord and Master, but He's going to take the hit, and He's going to do what is true to His character and nature, even at the very end, even when they are at their ugliest, when they should be getting what it is that He's been talking about in terms of the kingdom of God and service. They've heard it, and they've seen it. And He washes their feet. He takes the hit for them. Marriage is hard work. Marriage is Marriage is hard work because you've got two broken people who are coming together and with the power of God and the grace of Jesus and the indwelling of the Spirit and the help of the church, the example of the church, the, 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 the prayers of the church, these two people who are sometimes unbelievably, <laughs> unbelievable unbelievably excuse from each other through that power and through that spirit and through that mindset and that mentality they begin to link up in such a way that the two begin to look like one and people look on that marriage and say wow you know he wanted to be a drummer a rock band i don't even want to think about his former life and they look at her and they go wow you know this is the way that she grew up How is it that these two people are together and you can't say Mark without thinking of Ellen and you can't think of Ellen without thinking of Mark? Power of the gospel. Let's stand and sing.